Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced in collaboration with AM Best. Over the next 25 minutes, we will be joined by Mathilde Jakobsen, an analytics director within AM Best, Ricardo Cocosi, a market development director for AM Best Europe's rating services, and Derek Bridgman, managing director at Strategic Risk Solutions Europe. We will be discussing in depth the latest proposed changes to Solvency 2, what impacts they may have on captives, and how that could impact ratings of captives in Europe. We will also be addressing ESG, a hot topic on the podcast and in the corporate world generally at the moment, and how captives and AM Best are thinking about ESG at the moment. First, though, we start with Mathilde outlining the latest developments in Europe regarding Solvency 2. The last thing that happened was that on the 22nd of September, uh, the European Commission published its review of the Solvency II rules. And the next step is then for the European Parliament and the member states and the Council to negotiate the final legislative text on the basis of these proposals. The EC's proposals built on IOPA's um, published opinion on the Solvency II review that was published in December 2020. Um, so, so there's lots of areas under review, but the item that is perhaps most uh, relevant to captives and their owners is the application of proportionality. So under Solvency 2, the principle of proportionality is applied to ensure that the practices um, taken by supervisory authorities are proportionate in nature uh, relative to the risk of the, of the business. Um, and as captives are often small and lightly staffed, this principle is, is important to ensure that the regulatory burden isn't, isn't too burdensome. So I think it's, it's important to see that, that the EC uh, specifically acknowledges that, that in practice, the high level principle has been insufficient in reducing the regulatory burden for small insurers and has also given rise to a lack of clarity for both national supervisor and insurers. So that's what they're trying to address in this new proposal or this new set of proposals by introducing specific proportionality measures um, that can be applied to some by some insurers automatically and by others after, after regulatory approval. So they introduce a new concept of a low-risk profile insurer, and they have a set of criteria for what who qualifies as a low-risk profile insurer. And if you qualify, then you can apply a number of measures, a proportionality measures uh, automatically. And if you don't qualify, uh, you can still apply these proportionality measures, but, but after approval from the regulator. And the, the criteria, they sort of put restrictions on, on the complexity of the insurer, right? There's a maximum amount of premium you can write. Um, the combined ratio has to be below 100% for three years on, on average. And there's a limit to how much marine aviation and transport business you can write. There's a limit to how much investments you can have in non-traditional investments. There's a limit on how much you can see to reinsurers and how much business you can write outside of your member state. Captives are actually mentioned specifically, and it said specifically that they don't have to comply both the uh, restriction on how much you write outside of your country of domicile and also with how much you can see to reinsure. Another thing that is that is said is that the national supervisors have to um, collect statistics on what, what proportionality measures are used in their states and then send them to IOPA who in turn will, will, will probably publish something on them. 
I think there are some intriguing elements there for, for captives and certain demographic of captives to consider and might, and might be quite helpful. So, so Derek, how, how do you see some of these changes panning out? How much of an impact do you think some of those changes may have on, I guess, a, a limited number of captives? So I think, I think very much from the insurance manager's perspective, I think the jury is still out. Um, I think the process uh, is, is very much welcomed and is, is going to be required really to ensure that better harmonization across the different domiciles, particularly around the application of the proportionality principle. I suppose just from speaking, you know, in the context of the previous iteration, I think our view is really that IOPA and the European Commission need to probably be a little clearer with their recommendations and in particular around the use of language. It, it is still left to the national uh, regulators to apply proportionality. So where we see text where it says re- national regulators may apply aspects of proportionality, I think it would be more helpful if they if they instead use the word should, for example. Yeah. And I think it, it's really here uh, where we've seen in, historically have seen differences. So certain regulators have applied greater levels of proportionality and others. And really what that's that's resulted in is, is a, a sort of a lack of harmonization across across different domiciles. Although I, I, although I, I mentioned a concern there, I think it probably is important to uh, to point out that Sovereignty 2 has brought a lot of benefits, particularly around the risk-based regime. So a lot of companies have probably had more scrutiny around their captive structure, and they've probably been better prepared to withstand that scrutiny through the requirements and the structures that have been imposed by by Solvency 2. So I suppose in terms of how much it will impact the insurance managers, we are hopeful. I suppose the concern is that they don't go far enough. So so very much jury still out at the moment. So so the the, the European Commission estimates, they do an impact uh, uh, statement and publishes that, and they estimate that 249 insurers would benefit from the proportionality measures um, that they have introduced because of the because of the criteria, right? Um, the, like the, for instance, the size restriction. Um, a lot of the uh, the captives that are rated by Invest are really quite big, so they wouldn't they wouldn't fall under the criteria that would mean that they could apply these uh, measures automatically. A lot of them also write some some third party business or compulsory third party liability insurance, which would also take them out of the cap some of the captive specific proposals. So that means they would not they wouldn't they wouldn't sort of be able to apply these automatically. But nonetheless, the the measures have been identified and they can and then apply them with agreement from the regulator. Derek's point is an interesting one. And I think the lack of consistency between the approaches of national supervisors is a common complaint that we hear as well. Complaint is perhaps a strong word, but it, but it is something we hear, uh, we hear regularly. The more precise rules of the proposals here compared to the more principle-based approach before uh, might go some way to address that issue. And then if IOPA collect statistics on the use of proportionality measures in different countries that will highlight these differences um, that can then be addressed. It would be very interesting if they also got published and other people could see them. I didn't mention before some of the some of the actual proposals. So they are around reporting governance in particular um, and disclosures. So so one one proposal is that one person could hold se- several key functions other than internal audits, provided that conflicts of interest are managed. And that might be useful to captives because they often are lightly staffed um, organizations. 
And then there are proposals on, on sort of the, how, how often you have to revise your written policies, how often you have to report to the regulator. There's a proposal that you could do an OSA report uh, every two years instead of every year. And that's sort of the nature of it. And then there's a, there's a specific proposal for captives saying that the narrative disclosure requirements in the solvency and financial condition report could be reduced if they don't write any, any third-party business or um, compulsory third-party liability insurance. I think the, um, the EC has attempted to strike a balance right, between ensuring policyholder and other stakeholder security and then disproportional regulatory burden. And I think the measures are limited and not of a kind that would reduce the uh, security for stakeholders. And of course, even though, you know, if you write first party business as a captive, your policyholder is your internal organization. But nonetheless, captives have many other stakeholders, right? insurance fronters, uh, the legal businesses within the organization, employee representatives, subcontractors and joint venture partners partners that might find comfort in, in knowing that the Solvency 2 regulation is applied. I also want to um, mirror Derek's um, points about, about ERM. We, we have seen better ERM practices uh, as, as captives have implemented Solvency 2. On, on that last point then, Mathilde, is it more, with any kind of changes to Solvency 2 or with the original implementation of Solvency 2, is it more the captive's response to those proposals and regulations rather than the actual changes themselves that in the context of ratings would actually impact how you view, how AMBES views uh, the captive and any ratings analysis? I think that's a fair comment. So we rate captives and other insurers across a number of jurisdictions and we apply our rating methodology and consideration to them in a uniform way without relying on the regulatory requirements. But it is often regulatory requirements that prompt actions, as you say, right? How, how, how captives react to that. And we definitely see, um, for instance, the author having to write the author makes a lot of companies better able to articulate their risk profile and the actions they take um, to manage that risk profile. So in terms of the demand for ratings, Ricardo, how, how do you think the actual implementation of Solm 2 over the past five or six years has, has encouraged one more robust captives and then supported the demand or, or rationale for achieving a rating? Yes, Richard, this is quite an interesting point in development, in fact. To answer it, we could frame it in the general relationship between Solvency 2 and credit rating. So I recall when, not so many years ago, in fact, uh, before solvency were completely implemented, the market at large, not, not just captives, of course, was quite critical of the whole solvency two idea. <laughs> Some insurers still are, perhaps. Some were even suggesting that once an insurer has satisfied its solvency two requirements, then why would a credit rating be needed at all? And now the question was considered even in the credit rating industry itself, but dismissed on the recognition of the fundamental difference between uh, the two processes. So regulatory set of prescriptive uh, capital requirements, etc., on one side to standardize solvency across the industry, while on the other, the um, credit rating of an insurer stands as an independent perspective view of an insurer's financial strength and ability to meet its ongoing insurance policy and contract obligations. Besides, for example, best financial strength rating includes also the specific consideration of the business profile of an insurer in terms of market position, control of distribution channels, pricing, underwriting culture, managing quality, uh, business strategy, products, etc. These are all factors that are not necessarily captured by Solvency 2. So actually, we thought then, 
and we've been proved right by the market growth, that Solvency 2 would instead strengthen the path to a credit rating. As expected, Solvency 2 did push insurers to make better use of their capital, to increase their funds and optimize their risk management. Uh, it also started a collection of data that would also be useful for credit rating and generally enhance the insurance industry attention on processes consistent with what is required to achieve a good rating. The fact that all insurers or insurers need to fulfill solvency two did ultimately result in all the industry considering potentially at least the option of a credit rating regardless of the actual size of the entity to be rated. So we do have, for example, several clients with relatively small GWP, uh, deconstructing, in fact, the myth that only large insurers or reinsurers may receive a rating. Now, this is a long introduction to the point, but I think we're facing a similar situation in the capitalist industry. Besides, even before the COVID-19 crisis, the hardening of reinsurance capacity in the market at the end of 2019 was already leading up to an inversion of the general trend of the industry until then. Uh, that is a progressive reduction or shrinking of the number of captives worldwide. Cheap insurance capacity, easy capital, were obviously a powerful disincentive to the establishment of a captive or even to its full utilization for many firms. So the trend was already changing. And then the COVID-19 crisis made it even more obvious uh, that managing your insurance and risk management needs is uh, not even anymore optional for many of those firms, as it makes sound business practice to control the insurance expenses and turn them into an investment, even supported by substantial savings in the short term. So I would like to recall that the typical context of a decision about pursuing a rating is mostly related for captives to fronting fees and collateral requirements. We can all boil down to capital costs and charges. Surely much depends on the fronter's pricing model, and their consideration of a rating. However, it is recognized that quite often a captive can achieve meaningful reduction of these costs with a rating. So in short, we saw an increase of capital formation as well as more efficient use of existing captives and their resources. And consistently, we have also seen more captives interested in a rating process. This would have probably happened anyway, even without the Solvency II pressure, uh, but it's true that those requirements have enhanced the context in which a rating may be seeked by captive owners. There is the obvious capital increase, which makes captives more likely to score well at the level of our baseline analysis, which is on the balance sheet assessment. And following the same logic, captives could also score better in other blocks of best credit rating analysis, especially operating performance and enterprise risk management. Additionally, the renewed attention on data collection has somehow opened the way to consider also other processes, such as rating, for example. So finally, Solvency II requirements have refocused the captive owner's management on the potential of their captives as flexible tool of business and risk management, sometimes beyond their initial conception as a pure insurance premium saving mechanism to consider also their expansion to third-party business, that is underwriting, not just groups business or groups related business. So yes, we have seen more captives taking this transition. A rating may then become a necessary part of their business strategy. Yeah, interesting, Ricardo. Thank you for that. Derek, you, you touched a bit on this a bit earlier, I think, in your initial comments, but how important do you think it is then that, that regulators do fully embrace proportionality and potentially this uh, greater flexibility regarding proportionality for captives to remain each domicile as a, a peeing location? And do you think, are there some jurisdictions within the EU which are already doing a better job in this regard in terms of uh, offering some degree of proportionality to captives? Yeah, I, I think I think it is critical uh, from a from a competitiveness uh, perspective, and 
yes, I think certain jurisdictions have ha, have been better at, at this. I, I think even in the we look at the offshore domiciles that sort of likes a Guernsey has been very pragmatic and, and proportionate with their application of, of uh, the proportionality principle. Also, with respect to innovation and, and ESG, and I know we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the, this a little further. I do think countries do need to to push it, but I do I do think they need to be guided as well because I think if you if you think about sovereignty too, uh, one of the key aims of it is to have harmonised approach. So I, I think it's it's clarity from top down really in the application of proportionality, but I think there needs to be the right balance there to to strike with respect to ensuring that the the domicile remains competitive. I think we've had lots of discussion around the the potential openness of non-traditional captive or domiciles uh, looking at, at maybe implementing some form of, of captive legislation. So France, obviously, Italy and Spain has had discussion as well. It, it's going to be critical that they do implement a proportionate approach to, to captive regulation. Otherwise, I think the, the attractiveness of that will just diminish uh, and we really won't see that, that set up. I think we need to be mindful that the captives are primarily writing writing uh, first party risks although we are seeing a shift from that and and, and certainly will continue to see more non corporate or, or commercial or consumer risks being housed in a captive and if that is the case i think then obviously there's there's going to be a higher level of regulation and less uh, application of proportionality for those so uh, good to get that update and those thoughts on sovereignty too, because obviously it is an ongoing uh, running uh, topic of, of discussion and of interest for captive owners, uh, obviously, particularly in Europe. Another area which is kind of uh, top of people's minds, and, we, and we've talked about this quite a lot on the Global Captive podcast in, in the past couple of months, is ESG, standing for Environmental, Social and Governance. And this is particularly top of mind in Europe, uh, talking about ESG disclosures at parent level, uh, the impact ESG is having on renewal discussions for insureds and the potential response or relevance of this for captives. Matilde, on, on ESG, how, how is AM best factoring ESG into its rating criteria and, and analysis? So, so as a credit rating agency, our focus um, is to understand how such factors impact the, the credit worthiness, the financial strength of insurers. So where there's material and relevant risk, be they ESG or other types of risk, we want to know what, what is the risk opportunity? What does it mean for the company? How do they manage it? And, and is there a potential for uh, an impact on financial strength short or long term? So ESG risks have always been implicitly covered in the rating analysis, but but it's now been made more explicit and transparent. So it's sort of it's 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 in it's in all of our building blocks. When we when we rate insurers, we look at balance sheet strength, operating performance, business profile, and enterprise risk management, and ESG factors can be relevant to all of those. Some examples, you know, on the balance sheet strength, obviously, things like climate risk um, can pose a severe threat to the balance sheet strength of the company because of because of the the rapid way a cat loss can impact the balance sheet. But also under operating performance, we see changes in fall under the the S part of it, such as changes in in social inflation that can affect operating performance metrics um, quite quite significantly. So social inflation is the rise of the cost of future claims caused by, by higher court awards or legislated rises in, in claims payment driven by changing societal behavior. And that, that's an area that to watch for casualty insurers with U.S. exposures. And then business profile, you can have a ESG can be a, a significant uh, reputational risk. 
So the, the business profile of, uh, assessment can be impacted negatively if there's an ESG-related scandal. And then, of course, you have you have ERM uh, where governance fall under. So uh, corporate governance is explicitly in the ERM building block and can have a, um, a, a severe negative rating impact where it where it goes wrong. I think I just want to say again that what we do is very much focused on how these factors that are collected under this ESG heading can have an impact on financial strength. So we don't make a judgment about the ethical value of ESG activities. We don't we don't evaluate the ESG credential of a company's. We are simply looking at how these factors can impact financial strength. Thank you, Matilda. I think that's interesting as well, because obviously, as you say, a lot of the issues which are relevant to and caught by uh, the ESG umbrella are issues that we have been talking about for a long, long time and will have been on people's agendas for a long, long time. Derek, as you would have heard on, on the pod over the past few months, there's, there's multi facets to this in terms of the relevance of ESG to captives and how it can impact them, how it, how captives can be kind of proactive in, in responding. How are you seeing uh, your clients and captives start to think and talk and contextualize the ESG topic. Yeah, it's certainly it's certainly been discussed more, more, and it's it's certainly higher on the agenda of the corporates. I think probably in part as a result of renewal discussions, where certain markets, I think you you'd mentioned in a previous podcast, certain markets have have stated they will not cover climate related risks going forward. So I think in this instance, it's going to be critical for the corporate really to demonstrate a willingness to back the risk management process and and potentially retain some risk going forward. And really, if you think about that, not very different to how captives are being utilised currently through this. Hard market. So it's, I do think they, they certainly have a role to play and, the, and, the, and the, the corporates are becoming very mindful of the, the flexible tool which, which they have at their disposal. I think ESG covers many areas, uh, obviously, but I think for, for carbon related risk, there's definitely an increased acknowledgement of the challenges. I think some of the challenges we're seeing in particular is, is potential inability f- uh, to meet commitments uh, made to stakeholders with respect to carbon neutrality. There's quite often a disconnect between sustainability departments and the insurance and risk. So again, quite similar to, to employee benefits, where there can sometimes be that disconnect between HR and, and insurance lack of a structured process to really understand and quantify the emission related risks. So I think our our advice to, to clients and, and where we're working with them is to really help them better understand the potential impact and the exposure to ESG risks. Um, and, and obviously this will, will vary greatly depending on, on their industry. I do think it's important that clients don't approach it uh, with a short-term lens, short-term financial lens particularly. I think similar to the way cyber was uh, a few years ago where clients really looked at it and the more proactive ones looked at it and maybe looked to incubate the risk within the captive to really just better understand it and, and be better prepared as the market changed. So, so I think we're seeing the benefit of that for clients who did that some years back now. Certainly moving to some element of risk-based regime in all captive domiciles, so not just sovereignty too, but I think that's been applied across across different jurisdictions. So I think the ability of companies to diversify their risk with the inclusion of, of ESG type risk could be advantageous. But I do think the more obvious benefit will probably come from having a flexible structure to essentially house risks which can't be placed, certainly at an economically efficient price in the commercial market. So big potential benefit to utilize a captive. I think a lot of the captives obviously have have, been, have built up uh, substantial reserves. So I think are, are really well-placed to potentially assist the corporate in, in housing these risks as they become more, more topical as we move forward. Yeah, certainly a topic to, to really keep an eye on over the next couple of years and see how captives and captive owners do, do respond to some of these challenges. 
Just lastly, Ricardo, I always think it's good to end, end these discussions just to remind people how captives can actually go about getting a rating if they are interested in, in starting that process. Cause they, so can you just uh, briefly talk that, us through that, please? Well, what they need... Uh, what they would need to do is they simply to get in touch with AMBEST, myself, for example, of course, and then we'll walk them through the process. The process consists essentially of two phases, a commercial one, uh, starting by providing us with basic information of the company to be rated. This phase is completed once a contract is signed, etc. Then there is the analytical one. At this point, we as market development would hand over the company to our analysts who would contact directly the entity to be rated and would provide access to our website to load the data required for the analysis. They would also arrange for a manager meeting, which can be in person or online, depending also on current COVID-related government regulations and traveling restrictions. In the course of the meeting, the top management of the captive would present the company to the analysts answering their questions, explain several points, etc. Uh, the interactive process could normally take anything up to eight weeks, uh, including data collection. The rating would then be internally, at AMBEST, I mean, submitted to a rating committee, and once internally approved, would then be submitted to the entity to be rated, which would have the option of accepting the rating or uh, and having it published, so it would become a public rating or not. Alternatively, the captive could choose a private rating, which could still be disclosed to selected third parties, like fronters, for example, but could not be used for regulatory purposes, although it could be disclosed also to regulator as a private rating. Some companies do this for several reasons. For example, because they feel they can achieve their target rating in the next future and they'd rather not interrupt the process, or because their business need is achieved by a private rating and they prefer to keep it confidential, etc. It is important to underline that if a company does not accept the proposed rating at the initial stage, then the proposed rating is not disclosed to the market. So there is no reputational prejudice or risk by undertaking an interactive rating process, even if the company were to find the initial rating too low, for example. Well, thank you to Mathilde, Ricardo and Derek for an informative 25 minutes on Solvency 2 developments, ESG and their relevance and potential impact for captives. If you would like to find out more information about our guests and AM Best service offering for captives, then please do visit the globalcaptivepodcast.com website and visit the Friends of the Podcast page. There you will also find guest pages and the full GCP back catalogue. In the meantime, however, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.